Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, friends, clever listeners. For the next few weeks, we're taking you on a little trip down memory lane. Clever launched in 2016, and since then, we've met so many talented folks and shared their fascinating personal stories that we thought we'd revisit a few of them. So we handpicked a selection of some of our favorites that are definitely worth a second listen. And if you miss them the first time, you are in for a real treat. We'll be back in September with some exciting and shiny new episodes for you. In the meantime, I hope you'll take us with you in your ears and in your hearts on all your summer adventures. I want to be with you on your bike rides, on your road trip, and lounging with you in a hammock. Okay, so we love and appreciate you a ton, and please do stay in touch on social. See you soon. Yeah, my finishing, they're the, like the backbone of the studio. So my first assistants were, like I worked out of my house first and I just had like a little corner store attached to it. And my neighbors across the street, they would just come over and like sit on the bench and watch me work. And I was like, all right, this is okay. Like for a while, then I was like annoyed. I'm like, well, help, like help me. Like I'll pay you to help. Me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you're just like sitting there, like sipping tea, watching me work. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to artist and designer Chris Shank, who's made a name for himself with his alufoil series of furniture objects in which items of industrial refuse are sculpted, covered in aluminum foil, and finished with resin. It's a visual language that could be described as decrepit luxury or romantic decay, deploying high caliber craftsmanship and industrial materials to stunning and provocative effect. Born in Pittsburgh, he got his BFA in sculpture at SBA and his master's in design from Cranbrook Academy of Art. After graduating, he stayed in Michigan and established his Detroit studio in 2011. He's exhibited at galleries and museums internationally and has just concluded his first solo show at Friedman Benda in New York. Let's talk to Chris. My name is Chris Shank. I live in Detroit, Michigan, and a furniture designer, artist, and I don't don't really stop to ask why. (laughs) It's just what I've always done. Okay, well, we're going to tease that apart in this conversation then. We're going to figure out why you gravitated towards furniture design and hybrid furniture design that's also art. That's fascinating to me personally. I am also a Michigander. A uh, native Michigander. Oh, yeah, I mean, I live in, in Los Angeles now, but I was born and raised in Ypsilanti. So I have a deep oh, awesome. bone marrow, deep affection for Detroit. I have like three great assistants uh, who came out of Ipsy. Man, yeah. it's good people from there. <laughs> it's so good. They went to Eastern, super talented. And they're like Ipsy strong. Like they really, they, they really love Ipsy like over Detroit. It's like they're very <laughs> territorial. So yeah. I kind of get it. We like to start from the very beginning, and I understand you were born in Pittsburgh. So I was. can you can you tell us a story from your childhood that describes your youth and your family and what your experience of Pittsburgh was like? Yeah, I was born there, but I was raised in Texas. So like my my time and my memories they were like brief but like impactful. 
So I was born there and I mean, we moved when I was like five going on six, but it was, let's see, like at that time, like my father was a house painter. My mom was a stay at home mom. Um, I had my, my brother, Joseph and my sister, Jalay. We'd already sort of moved around like a few times before we left. And I, Pittsburgh was like, it was a bit weird because there were like my last, some of my earliest memories are of leaving there. We left sort of in a, in a, in a hurry, like overnight, we sort of packed the car and drove to Texas with like no real explanation why. Well, it was a bit dodgy in the sense that my mother would walk me to kindergarten and we'd be followed by a police car. And it was like, whoa, this got really intriguing. You're going to have to, (laughs) you're going to have to tell us this whole story. It was like, I think my, 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 like my parents were really young and gotten like some kind of sketchy stuff. And we had to like, we like without going into super details, like we had to leave. And it was like a, a weird sort of transition because my, all of our family was from there, like all of my grandparents, aunts and uncles, but we just sort of packed up and, and left like in the middle of the night. But like that didn't seem sort of weird as a kid. It seemed like an adventure and like my other good memories there. Like my mother was like really super creative and like my first real sort of, I don't know, like art teacher, you know, mm. at home. And we would, she had all these friends. We'd go to their houses and make like popsicle and yarn art and, you know, just sort of arts and crafts. And she was like always very industrious and like good with whatever materials were around. So I just remember just like hanging out with her and her friends, like making stuff. And I don't know. And then, yeah, then we took off to Texas. So taking off to Texas, you are also kind of, I guess, I don't want to call it ripped, but a little bit ripped away from also your extended family and everything you had known thus far in your life. You said it felt like an adventure, but did it also feel a little precarious or scary? It totally did. It it, it sucked in that I lost like that connection to, I mean, people I'd already grown to love, you know, and care Mm -hmm. about, especially my grandparents and my uncle who also I should say, like before I left there, was extremely influential because he was a graphic designer. So he was like the first professional artist I was around. And he, I mean, my parents never encouraged like me being creative and stuff, but he took it to another level of like when I was five, bought me a drafting table and and pencils and markers. Like before I could even like sit at the table, you know what I mean? He was like, these are the tools of the trade. And this is what you, you know, he was like, I mean, he saw that I could draw. I mean, at at five, you know, I was, I had an ability, you know, that he could recognize anyway. And, and, and a passion, I expressed my interest, you know? And so he gave me all this stuff and he would give me like lessons. Like he worked out of his home and he would draw there. And he was like, like the first, my first drawing lesson with him is like, he drew a soup can and just watching someone draw on a lips. I didn't know what the lips was, but seeing the skill and like the confidence of like someone rend- like drawing something from life was like totally magical. And it's like, yeah. that was like definitely what I was going to do in one way or another. And then, and he continued to, even from afar, like he made a real effort to visit us in Texas and we didn't get back to Pittsburgh much, you know, it could be five years between visits, but he would come down and always, you know, just sort of, he just always got it, you know, and we'd always work together whenever we had an opportunity and he mentored me, you know, from near and afar to make sure that I pursued it and, you know, went to college and stuff like that. So he was a real hero and mentor yeah let's let's can we call him out or his business or anything you got a name for this uncle well he's rock he's rocco rocco siamaco (laughs) 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 you can call him rock but don't call him buddy because i grew up calling him buddy and uh something happened and he decided buddy wasn't cool anymore (laughs) <laughs> I don't like, I don't, I gotta get that story still. Now it's just rock. It's just Rocco. So okay. He's like semi-retired now. 
he's like having a little trouble with, with his health. But he's but he was yeah just independent Rocky Simaco <laughs> still wor- still working as an independent graphic designer in Pittsburgh. But it's also important that like he like he came up like doing that in the seventies and eighties and like he made the digital like transformation. But before that, he was a master in like watercolors and colored pencils. You know, I mean, just saw this like mm. analog. masterful process of like rendering or the real world, you know, that was just like beyond like, I don't know. It was what I had always aspired to do. I didn't do that exactly, but I had a great respect for like the craft early just by watching him. Well, what a fantastic influence in your life. I'm happy to hear that story. Me too. I'm super grateful. (laughs) So it sounds like you knew from a young age that you wanted to pursue the arts, but you know, high school is a weird time for kids and and there's a lot of angst and there's a lot of self-discovery. Were you involved in a lot of arts programs in, in your high school? I was incredibly, incredibly lucky in high school because I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, like Mm -hmm. in this place called the colony, which it is what it sounds like. It's in the middle of like nowhere. And, I, and if I'd gone to my traditional Texas high school, Newman Smith, I would have probably never made it out of Texas, but I found out there was an arts magnet high school in downtown Dallas. My middle school art teacher told me about it and she's like, oh. you should look into this and you, you should apply to this school. So it's called Booker T. Washington and it was the first integrated high school in Dallas. So I put together a portfolio like with her help and went down into the city and applied and went through this, you know, process. We had to like do a, a live drawing thing and a live sculpting thing and interview. Anyway, I got in. It's like fame. It was like the fame of Dallas. It saved my life. If I hadn't gone to that high school and met the teachers and mentors there, like I would have never, ever I would have still been sitting in some apartment in Dallas dreaming about what could have been if I took Mm. my creativity seriously. It was like the intensity, the professionalism, um, the expectations that they put on you was just a very sort of expiated uh, process, you know, to, they took you seriously and they wanted you to take yourself seriously. And it just... How totally validating for like a an, an adolescent trying to find their creative path and, and figure out if it's viable or if it's even worth putting energy into. Right. I mean, there's yeah. no like it was a dream, a dream come true. They were just I mean, my drawing teacher, Miss Miller, like we drew every we did life drawing every day, five days a week. You know, and it was like, Miss Miller made you draw, you know, and just like work your ass off. And mm-hmm. my painting teacher, Mr. Mosley, George Mosley was like a father figure. And he like, he taught me about, before that art was some like vague, ancient, historical thing, you know, that like, couldn't, I couldn't really get my head around. And he was like, this is what contemporary art, you know, and and taught me how to paint and took me to the museum and gave me a studio. I had my own painting studio in high school. Oh my God, really? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's so amazing. cool. It was, I mean, it was, it was beyond, I mean, if there was any doubt before then, I was completely hooked for better or worse <laughs> at that point, you know, that it was like, oh, this is a, like a real thing. And having people around you that believed in you, you know, and that, that you could, hey, you can do this for a career. When it's really hard, you know, a working class family, tell them you want to be an artist. And they're like, that is like, there's no, like, how the fuck are you going to do that? That's not a real, that's not a real thing, you know, having professionals like tell you, you know, and they were doing it. They were all practicing, you know, that was part of, to work at the high school, you had to be a practicing artist on some some level. So then you could be like, look, mom and dad or society like these people have you know they're artists and they have a job and they can do this for a living yeah yeah that's great yeah so then you went on to study a lot of stuff at a couple of different places so you studied sculpture at sva and then photography and 3d design at cranbrook is that right more or less i I studied sculpture at sva then i did like a brief stint I went to get an MFA at Central St. Martin's in London, which I dropped out of. And then I ended up at Cranbrook 
and it was just a 3D design education. But I, I had a, a great mentor in the photography department, Liz Cohen. Okay. I wasn't officially in her department, but she came and critiqued my work and became a client. She commissioned work and became a mentor, and my conversations with her were sort of super important to my time there. So can you walk us through kind of what your college years were like? SVA was like a total trip. I mean, I was, you know, like fresh, young, like 18-year-old kid out of Dallas. So I didn't, I mean, New York was just like super intimidating. Like I didn't know like what was. I went to New York when I was 18 too, and it was the best thing I ever could have done. And it was the scariest thing ever. Same. (laughs) Yeah. Same. I was like, I had like, I had a good education, like the good foundation. And it was like, but I was just like, what, like my teachers were like, go look at art. I'm just like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, (laughs) Like I'm so, I'm so out of my element. Like what's wrong with me? You know, like I thought I was good, but clearly I'm not, you know? And it was such, such a vulnerable experience. That's like, you know, just looking, looking and trying to understand. And one day it sort of clicked when I saw an exhibition by Franz West. It was like the first sort of what's called conceptual work that I could connect to in some way. And, and then like, I didn't know a single person here when I came here. Right. So I met a great recruiter from SVA at my high school who was like, you're going to come to New York, you know, and I just trusted and believed this guy. And he's sort of, you know, held my hand through that process. And I told my parents, All right, I'm going to New York. And they're like, you know, we can't like help you. I'm like, no, I totally get it. It's not like that. I'm just, I'm just letting you know. You go. Right. <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> and so I got there and didn't literally knew no one. And like, and that was like, but I also love that. Yeah. And have ever since. Like I love sort of just being completely out of my element. So I, I embraced that part of it. A great group of like peers at the school who are in, like from New York or New Jersey and are just like connected and take me around to the clubs. Like my, I had my first like solo show at the Limelight Club. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. <laughs> he was like, let's do a show like in the back room. And I like did these series of paintings and we did horse tranquilizers and just like partied. And it was just like, that was like, was that, that the nineties? It was the nineties. It was like <laughs> such a good scene. And it was like, but they like, they introduced me to that, you know, like they showed me the ropes and those horse tranquilizers are fun though. <laughs> they totally are. I don't think I can. Ha- I don't think I can handle it now. But it was super fun, and they like. Yeah, it was a it was a blast. Like I loved, I loved SCA, and like, and you got to work with amazing sort of artists. You know, I'm, I worked with Heim Steinbeck, who was like a hero of mine. You know, before I went there, and they were like, you know, curating you into student shows, but like it was done by some my favorite sort of artists and so it was like a real confidence boost and it's amazing learning curve you know yeah just trying to keep keep up and catch up with other kids who were just like way hipper to the scene you know (laughs) oh my god describing my experience too (laughs) oh my god right and then immediately like Upon graduating, like I got to show like an amazing, uh, at the time it's gone, it's a Massimo Ariello gallery, which is in Chelsea. The guy came into my studio and picked my work, put it in a show. And what was so significant was like, it was the same gallery that Felix Gonzalez Torres first showed at when he was like just starting. Right. And that, and I admired him like in college, like I came to like admire like a few people. It was like Franz West. Gonzalez Torres and like Matthew Barney, like that, like in the nineties, like that was like, that was my jam. And he started there and this guy put me in the gallery and I was just like, I fucking made it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm in the same gallery as Gonzalez Torres. You know, he quickly like dropped me <laughs> because we got like into a huge argument. It was a short lived sort of thing, but it was a real, it was a taste of the professional world that was like intoxicating. Is that argument worth talking about? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. It was uh, maybe like it got reviewed in the times and it was like, Oh shit, you know, just, and it was so exciting. And, but he, he talked about the work 
I did this installation piece that was kind of like based off of these these homes I saw as a kid in Dallas. It was like these developments that got abandoned and just sort of, and we would play in these like abandoned develop, developments and it was sort of recreating that environment. But it was always, but my recreation was very saccharine and, and sweet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he talked about it as like I made a giant birthday cake. And so I called him up and I was like, Massimo, I was like, please don't tell people I made a giant birthday cake. Like, it's so much more meaningful than that. And he was like, Chris, you were like, you are not the Nazi, like art police. You cannot tell people what to think. Like, he just like chewed me out (laughs) about trying to tell him what he should or should not say about his Mm. words or how people should interpret it. And it like, we both had a point. Like I learned that, yeah, you can't, if it's not in the work inherently, like you can't tell people what to think or how to feel about what you make. You have to let them experience it. This is an Uh, argument I have with my husband all the time. (laughs) He always wants to ask the artist, like why they made what they made. And he wants to know like the reason behind it and that story. And he's like, that's the true story of the art. Like that's what it means. And I'm like, yeah, but if I look at it and I say, Oh, I think it means this is that not the true meaning of the art or, or, and he says no. And I'm like, well, that's not fair because it's how I feel about it. And it's my relationship with it. And like, once you make art and put it out into the world, like, is it really only meaning what you meant it to or you intended it to mean, or does it take on all of these new meanings in a subjective way with each person that has an experience with it? I hope it's the latter. I hope it takes on the new meaning. So you're saying I'm right. (laughs) <laughs> I need yeah, to have that on record. <laughs> I am. I'm fighting with you. <laughs> so, okay, cool. I'm going to get my first hate mail from your husband. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's get to Cranbrook. Oh, I mean, unless you want to tell us about dropping out of Central St. Martin's. I can brief, like briefly because it led into Cranbrook. So I went there to get an MFA in, in fine arts and I was there studying. And at that point I, I was already sort of making conceptual work about like architecture and design, uh, like small, small scale, like fantastical, like models of like science fiction architecture and stuff like that. And, and I was around all these amazing artists, but I realized that I was more interested and actually doing the design instead of just being an outside sort of critic or on the fringe of the conversation. Like it, it intrigued me like enough that I didn't want to, I couldn't pursue it like, like purely as like just an artist. I didn't think like I wanted to really try on the skin of a designer and how they thought and how they approached the world. Cause, and so I, I was like, I don't need to get an MFA and, and fine arts specifically. So I just, let me like reboot and go get a design degree and like see what this is all about. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. So I went back to New York and put together like a pretty amateur design portfolio, like some silly stuff, some goofy stuff. I like maybe tried to make one or two earnest like things, but I was like a pretty experienced maker at that point. So even though like if the conceptually the ideas went strong, there was a strong sense of craft and with that combination, uh, Cranbrook seemed to be the right fit or like they, they accepted that I had a, you know, fine arts background and interest mm-hmm. in design. They were like, okay, cool. You can like explore it here. So I went there thinking that, well, trying to make not like sculptural, like artistic things at all, but I wanted to know what, what did it feel like to make like ubiquitous, like, anonymous piece of design mm-hmm. conceptually that area like really interested me to, to sort of and to get outside of your own head and to look out at the world and you know and observe and try to make uh, still an artifact that you can put out into the world and be used without people ever thinking about how to use it or who made it right um, so i tried doing that and like wasn't super good at it I made, I made some like, like interesting things, but I got to know people doing it. So I, I thought that in the process of doing that, it made sense to get to like, to take on a single client or a single individual person and find like one specific need to try to design around. So 
sort of, that really got me interested in this idea of like not designing for many, but designing for one, which sort of led to designing for just an experience and it didn't have to be, you know, for everyone or liked by everyone. And it went from very sort of practical to completely experience based and not having to have like any high function in any sort of like passive way that you would expect, I don't know, a standard piece of furniture to have. Everything that you're saying totally resonates with me. Uh, this is Amy, and I'm also a furniture designer. I have an MFA from RISD, but I okay. was never, ever able to really conquer the pure utilitarian, the pureness of design for the, for the people. I was yeah. only ever interested in this really a conceptual function, this function that yeah. invited the user in to have a long-term relationship with the piece, but the piece was really conceptual and personal. And so yeah. this sort of hybrid of furniture and sculpture, artistically speaking, that's, that's my jam. And so yeah, no, it's a great territory. There was like, uh, I had experiences in New York before Cranbrook when I was just making a living working for art galleries, museums, model making shops. But I worked in, at MoMA for a while as an art handler for like three years, like MoMA, MoMA proper and PS1. And MoMA was such a good, interesting job in that, the first like week working there, you're just like chilling in the break room and the boss comes out and there's like, who wants to like dust the collection and all the like <laughs> normal staff is like pretending to sleep. They're like, I don't want to fucking do that. And I'm like, yeah. I'll do it. And, then, and he's like, cool, here's the feather duster, go to the collection, dust it off. And I was like, okay. So like to the permanent collection of the MoMA, there is like, there's not a single guard patron or like other staff worker. Like it is like complete VIP access wow. to like the permanent collection. So I'm going around like dusting brancusis, like to like touching them, uh. not actually touching them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with no one there, and it was like these uh, these icons, like that I you know admired all my life, and there I was, like you know, with them and interacting with them, and there was like this moment this power of like holy shit like that like breaking through that wall was like that is like an energy that i i knew i had to like keep exploring and a lot of what i do now goes back to like that experience you know trying to create something so like standalone sculpturally but has this like room to negotiate it and interact with it and like figure out how you become like a part of it yeah you pioneered a, a sort of trademark technique that you're famous for called alufoil while you were in school yeah. at Cranbrook. Did you have that feeling when you started working in that vein that this was a direction that was going to be really important for you? Yes. When it first, when, it, when I made this, like really the very first maquettes, really small, sloppy, like you know, 3D sketches. Uh, I got like instant like feedback, from, you know, from from the object that was really exciting. It'd be, it was a, like a very immediate sort of process initially, but the results were like super alien to me. You know, so much that it, it you know didn't feel like I made it, and that and that's what I'm like always like searching for. Like I'm chasing that dragon, right? Of like it happened, but like, I, you know, I don't know how it happened. Like, I don't have, I don't have to see myself in it. You know, if it becomes alien enough, it's worth exploring to figure out where, where it came from and what it is. I was super excited about it initially. I didn't know that it would lead to, you know, building a more of a career off of like this thing or anything like that, you know, but I knew that this was going to be something that was going to take some time to tease out and mature. Yeah. And it was, it was a, a new, it was a, a completely new technique. And that's so one, it was just a, a long time of just learning how to understand this process and develop it. And it was like learning a new, like a, any technique, learning how to paint something. You're just learning the, the, the fundamentals, right? Until you can decide what are you going to do with it now? Are you going to paint a landscape or an abstract portrait? You know? It seemed like it was, it could be a whole world worth exploring. Mm. Well, it seems to me too, like kind of like creating a new language. 
you, you can create yeah. some sounds and syllables, but then you've got to apply meaning to the words and then tense, and then you've got to string them together to tell the whole story. And in a new language, the test of success is how it connects and expresses to other people. That is entirely correct. I mean, that is like spot on. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I can do it. Now, what do I do with it? Yeah. What do I want to say with it? You know, what, you know, what's the, what voice do we give to this process? And, you know, it's a material and process. And that's all it is until you have something to say with it. Right. So that must have felt like, and you said chasing the dragon when you, the worst feeling in the world is sort of running around in circles, not knowing which direction you're going in. But when you find your dragon and you can just chase after it wholeheartedly, that feels really exciting. No, it totally does. Like to be, to feel like you're in the, in the, behind some creative energy. Yeah. It's, 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 It's propelling, it's propelling you, you know, and you're just trying to figure out what it is and keep up with it and manifest something out of like what's coming off of it is like, that's the, that's the high. Was it in any way informed by your surroundings in Detroit? Because you made a decision to stay in Detroit and start your studio there. And I'm wondering you know, as a Michigan native and somebody who's really fond of Detroit, I know that there's a grittiness, there's a scrappiness, and there's kind of an, a beauty in the history and texture. And I'm wondering if that was informing your work. It's a delicate thing to talk about. I mean, because, I mean, you have to remember, like, I, but I am, I'm not from there, right? So right. I'm, not a, I'm not a native. And, but it's super inspiring, you know, and that's, I think when I when I moved down into Detroit, I was extremely naive about sort of what I was doing and what I was seeing and trying to understand my context and community. And like admittedly, so I was always sort of seduced by images of the apocalypse, right? Since like in, in film and, you know, uh, literature, things like, like I was always really interested in that. And then, I was like, oh, here I am in the <laughs> post-apocalypse scenario. And I loved, like, I loved the texture of it, but that's not enough. You know, and it, right. like, that's like an incredibly an outsider perspective. And so it took time to understand what I was really in and the, and learning about the people around me, learning about my neighbors. And for, for the first time in my life, feeling like I was in a community which was sort of bizarre and new to me. So it was, it was um, a lot of things happening at once. Sure. So I, then I started to understand it wasn't the apocalypse. It was these people in communities like, like, like not just surviving, but thriving, like on the fringes and edges of, of, of a city, you know, that had, had figured out how to like make it happen and, and create their own standards of living in their own communities. And that, it just completely flipped my uh, perspective, you know, and I mean, that, that took, that took a couple of years, you know, to, to really sort of figure that out. It's like walking to like a, a room with the lights out and you can't see anything, but if you just chill and adapt, you like things start emerging like out of the darkness. And that's what it felt like. It's like, this isn't garbage. This isn't trash. This is like very, very thoughtful, like, mm-hmm. like maximalist use of material and energy to create, place and create community and it was and still is like the most inspiring like thing I, I can be around it's really interesting yeah I've always felt very connected to there's a DIY mentality and by DIY I don't mean like the home improvement channel I mean like the in the punk sense of the word right on of like not ha- necessarily having to conform to any sort of set of rules or permissions, but just figuring out what works and, and doing it in a way that benefits your own survival and your own community that I feel like permeates Detroit and it, people like to disparage Detroit, but I feel like there's so much optimism there. No, I think, no, you're entirely right. It's it's incredibly optimistic. My good friend and artist in Detroit, Wesley Taylor, who I greatly admire, is, you know, taught me, like I learned through his eyes, and he was like, he's like, Detroit's always been like going through a renaissance, man. It's not like just happening right now. Yeah, it's always been like like, that. (laughs) 
it's like it's been contributing globally like it's culture you know for decades this is like this is not a new thing man you know he's like you're coming in on like on something you know he's like be a part of it but like like you're not inventing it man Right. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Way to like, give right. you perspective, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, cool, man, cool. I was like, all right, all right. I was, yeah. <laughs> but you gotta, but you gotta find those people. You know, you have to find like who have who have been there and like like seen the ups and downs, and their families, you know, have seen the ups and downs, and like learn how to like ride the wave and survive, and just like like they're. I don't know. It's like, it's always been a, it's always been a good city. You know, it's just like, it's not just happened now. Right. Well, your love for it feels very sincere. And that comes across. It, it is. I mean, it's like, I guess I never felt like, I mean, we moved, you know, when I was growing up between Pittsburgh and in Texas, we moved about 22 times <gasps> that I can remember before I left for college, you know? So it was always, it's like always bopping around, you know, mm-hmm. and I just had my immediate family, you know, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, like that was it. And then New York, you know, it's just like, how many different times do you move living here, you know? And it's, it wasn't until I got and moved into the city, into my house. And there was like, I'm putting down roots. I'm like, this is weird. You know, this is like, not, I like got antsy, you know, like this is not my style. You know, like they're like, like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And then, mm-hmm. and then, like maybe I don't know. My uh, like internal clock was just like, just give it a minute. You know, just like see what this is about and see what you can do here because this is it presented the energy of the city like was just so rare and unique. Like never felt anything like that. So I want to talk about your your work and your shows. Your First, I, I think your first solo show was with Friedman Benda Gallery. Is that correct? It is. So how do you feel like your work has evolved leading up to, to this show? I think, I mean, you kind of, I mean, you kind of nailed it earlier when you were saying it's sort of about learning, it's like learning vocabulary, right? So you just start off with like little bits and then you have to like string things together and then you have to create content and meaning. I think up this show was like, was that where we, we, not just me, but my entire studio staff, like matured in the process and became like involved in creating the, like the narratives around the work and what we were doing for, you know, for years, it was like me running around just trying to teach people how to do it mm-hmm. and like what I was thinking and what I was trying to do. But by the time it came around to produce the show, had you know sculptors and assistants and people working who who mastered their areas of the craft and and not just the making but became involved in like conceptualizing like what we were trying to do so we had conversations around like developing the work and what we were trying to say with it so it was it went from like a very singular experience of like just me to like much more of like a, like family style mm-hmm. making you know so we could and just take the work like like further, you know, and just get funkier with it, and just you know really try to do like what we've been talking about doing, you know, like in our like dreams, you know, like cause we've been like up before the show doing like doing cool work and like commissions like shows here and there, but never a real platform, you know, to, sh- to like show off what we could do. So it's like, all right, let's, let's totally geek out. And I appreciate you saying we because I do feel like a lot of times when artists have either techniques or or a lot of production going on and they grow their studio, they still kind of, it's very singular and people still just think of that one person. And and, cause that's like the person who represents the work. Right. But it sounds to me like you work in a very collaborative environment. Is that the kind of energy that's going on in your studio at all times? It is. It's wildly collaborative and it's, uh, but it's not, it's not my natural state. That's what was hard because, you know, I come like from artist, individual studio practice, you know, you have these like images in your head of like the artist toiling away, completely suffering in in his room by himself. Right. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. You know, (laughs) (laughs) then it starts like growing, you know, like kind of accidentally, like with these people around you and then 
that just keeps growing and you work with them day in and day out and it's like it's not like assistance it's like it's like friends and family and like if my crew walked out on me now like i'd be done like i would like they're like they're too good like they're too good like they're just so like ingrained in every part of it you know like i can't like i don't know like i would survive you know mm-hmm. but i would feel like i lost like my partner you know like i'd start again but like probably doing like origami like in a hotel somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like i'm super dependent but like in the most healthiest way like <laughs> i've been like in like really bad codependent like relationships most of my life but this is definitely the healthiest <laughs> one where i'm just like i really love you guys like <laughs> well yeah i mean you guys spend all day together kind of birthing these things together and 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 so there has to be collaboration but like also mutual respect and willingness to work with each other on a daily basis well, I also read, and you can tell us about this, but I read that there's a Bangladeshi community outside of your studio and that s- several Bangladesh transplants work in your studio and have actually sort of mastered your technique and, and taken it further than you ever did. And I love that. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, I'm not finishing. They're the, like the backbone of the studio. So my first assistants were, like I worked out of my house first and I just had like a little corner store attached to it. And my neighbors across the street, they would just come over and like sit on the bench and watch me work. And I was like, all right, this is okay. Like for a while. And then I was like annoyed. I'm like, well, help, like help me. Like I'll pay you to help. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like sitting there, like sipping tea, watching me work. (laughs) And so my very first assistant was Milufa. And she lived across the street, and then her daughters. They also started working there. So it was it was me and and the three and the three of them with the first crew. Oh, I like, love it! Like learning how to foil, and and that like I don't know, like you get pretty close, and like that also comes with a lot of pitfalls. But and that grew. Uh, so like yeah, the at the town, the part of town we live in, Northeast Detroit, is is called Bangladesh, uh, established by the. Bangladeshi community there, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, and we're like right on the edge of like Hamtramck, which has like the most mosque per capita in the, in the U.S. So it's this really strong, like, vibrant, like, community, you know, that's growing there. So like, it grew word of mouth, right? As I needed more assistance because work options for a, a new immigrant are sparse. We have people moving here who are experts in craft back in. Bangladesh, who are running like textile factories in charge of quality control and leather factories, just like extremely detail oriented and sophisticated in materiality and process. Mm-hmm. But you move to the U.S. in this neighborhood, and the best job option is to be shuttled off to a fruit and vegetable factory in the next town. You know, in the mm-hmm. middle in the middle of the night, there's just like it's totally it's kind of fucked up. So. Like that's the sort of, I don't know, the circumstances of it. Yeah, but I love that you moved in and you started creating jobs and uh, creating more community and more opportunity for these people to, you know, learn a new craft, but also be creative. That's awesome. It's it sounds totally like you awesome. didn't even really like try to create jobs. You just got annoyed I with didn't. them. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't try, I didn't try to do anything. I didn't like, this was not a mission. This was like, not like, I'm going to do good. And right. community. No, this was like totally like self-serving, and like like mute, like mutually beneficial. Like my only credit is I saw the value in it after it started mm-hmm. happening, and that like yeah. this is this is a cool way to live. Like this is like like this is like work and life to me were always like connected. Like I never saw a separation, you know. And and doing it this way, this was like this is a cool like better way to do it. Like for you know, like spiritual, like health, be surrounded by like amazing, like cool people who are, who will do this with you. It's like, seems sustainable, you know? Right. And that grew like, so the Bengali ladies, their crew of seven strong and they're just, they're so legit. Like they, they open up the shop 9am, they leave at five and they just kill it. <laughs> and they, and they care, they care about it, you know, and they get it now. And it's like, it's like, and it makes for, 
it's a totally Motley crew, like Detroit scene. But it does sound like the healthiest codependence I can imagine. Yeah, it is. I, yeah, I can accept. I can accept these terms. I can make them totally. Yeah. I'm all in on it, and it's like it's not all like nice and like easy. It's like working with seven of your aunties who like <laughs> give you a, a hard time all the time. It's like, <laughs> why are you still single? And like, oh my God. they, they bust your, you know what? Like, it's not uh-huh. like there, there's a, there's a lot of, I don't know. Yeah. It's like working with family. It gives you a hard time. It's not yeah. always easy. No, it's not easy, but it's, but it's family. And that means it's underscored by love and love is the tentpole of well being. So there you go. Yeah. I can get down with that. <laughs> All right, that was very revealing and, and and speaking of revealing yourself, I'm wondering if you can share with us like I don't know, something you might consider to be a secret. Like something a ridiculous hope or or I mean you already sort of exposed a fear of doing origami in a hotel room somewhere, but maybe there's maybe there's something a quirky interest or an ambition that you've never really talked about. We don't have to go in depth because it's maybe unformed, but just give us a little, a little something. Uh, God, that's so hard. I'm like, I'm so private. And like mm-hmm. this whole like thing of working in the studio with 10 people seeing like your good and bad side is like such, is such, it's been such a learning curve for me, like emotionally. There's something to reveal is something that, I would be a, a fear maybe to reveal is that like bef- before this, if I, like if I ever failed, I don't, I only felt like I was failing myself and I'm, I'm very, like inherently a pretty destructive person, like for whatever reason, like there's all like been a trail sort of gunpowder sort of behind, behind me sort of thing, you know? And so like, uh-huh. that's a, that's kind of a constant fear of like self-destructing, but if I'm solo, it's like only I blow up. Right. Being around people that I care about and want to be able to, you know, create a sustainable situation. If I fail now, I feel like I'm failing, I'm failing at everyone. And that's like, that terrifies me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not answering your question, but no, that's that's. Ri- Thank you for being so honest, and I totally get it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know, from this perspective, or maybe from zooming out and getting the aerial view, 
it's probably why the universe has put you together with these people to keep you from self-destructing. Ooh, going deep, Amy. Yeah, no, I, mean, like, well, I felt it. <laughs> no, I Maybe. mean, like, if that's, the, if that's the plan, yeah, I mean, like, then I feel protected and, and lucky. Yeah. But you also get to get up close and personal with your own sense of accountability and responsibility. And I don't mean that in like in terms of just not self-destructing. I mean like in terms of witnessing how much love and impact you have yet to put out in the world and how much love and impact you can have on a daily basis. Yeah. Maybe. No, I don't maybe you're I don't. Right. No, you're right. No, you're to- <laughs> you're totally you just you just got me. You got me. <laughs> I'm just like I I got I I got enough you're just yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just I feel it. I don't have anything to say. You're right. Well, let's let's look to the future. What yeah. is there some fun adventure or something that's I don't know that you keep as a carrot dangling in front of you that you might do one day that makes you excited about the future? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things like there's I, I lo- well. So like we're at this point, you know, with the work that we did our first, you know, our first and only solo show with like Friedman Bender, which is just our dream gallery, you know, but it, but it was like the culmination of like this body of work that we'd been building, you know, up to this point, you know, and it's like, and I think we did, you know, I think we fucking nailed it, but it's like, but as an artist, you know, the thing is like, okay, but now what? Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like we like we can't of course like we have more ideas within that body of work and we're gonna evolve branches of it, you know, and mature it in like in new ways. But it's like what the fuck are we gonna do now? Like that's the that's the most terrifying and exciting thing about that like for me, like to be an artist, you know, like how can we like what are we gonna do? And we have these like like scrappy models and tests and new processes we want to develop but now we have more experience and that we're looking at it we're sort of flipping the narrative in the sense that we have narratives and ideas that we want to explore and and so going into materials and processes with a clear vision of what we want to talk about sort of starts to mold and define the forms and the process moving forward, which is a very different way of working for me that it's sort of hard to define and the results are completely unknown, but that's like a really good place to be. That exploratory phase. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know why? Because you tinker around in there until you find the next dragon to chase. Mm. That's right. You need a new drug. You just, you need a new drug and it's going to like, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be so good. And like, I'll I'll, I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes to get there. Like, like literally there's nothing more important. Do you have like a a big picture or, or a bigger vision for your work in your studio? Like what's the, I don't know, the main goal. Main goal is like, it's, I mean, I don't know, because I'm really, really happy with what we've achieved. If I, if the high school, Chris, that we talked about, that Booker T. Washington saw what we've created now, he wouldn't fucking believe, like, there's no way. Like, he would have been like, you wouldn't, you, you, you weren't supposed to live that long. The way, the way, the way you do things. So it's achieving what we have today. I think it's important to like stop and be really, really appreciative. That being said, moving forward is about building a, like a stronger, more sustainable like studio, like where we can, we want more, more, I mean, more and more authorship over what we're doing. I mean, we have total authorship, but in the sense that being being able to explore the work like boundlessly, uh, being allowed to fail, and and being able to make work that expresses the world that we live in right now is, mm. is the goal. Like that's like you want to feel relevant, man. I mean, like that, like I do, like you know, I want to feel like I know a little bit about who I am and the time I'm living in, and I do that through like making artifacts. 
you know, and that this is just like one little blip, you know, in time that was like right on time. Yeah. And I don't, you know, that's, that's the goal. That's a meaningful goal. I like that. Well, I mean, the Friedman Benda show is something that we definitely would recommend that our listeners uh, take a look at, but is there anything else going on that you'd like to share with them? A new project coming up or something to look out for? In winter, various group shows, museum stuff, and, and they commission stuff that's like all private stuff. So you can't talk about it right. anyway. I don't know. We're working on like some new crazy stuff <laughs> that I hope people like. Well, the thing is like people like it or hate it. Yeah. They're like, there's not a lot of people in the middle of the road for what we do. They're like, eh, yeah. it's okay. They're like, it's great. <laughs> it's horrible. So expect more. <laughs> it's fantastic. Or it's the worst thing I've ever seen. Well, you're doing something right. If there are people who absolutely love it and absolutely hate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, where can our listeners keep track of you? Like your website and social media handles. All right, my website sucks. It's like a like splash page. <laughs> it's like chrisshank.com. It has like one image. It doesn't load properly. It's, yeah, it's super professional. So like Instagram, like is, that's the way to go. Chris, just Chris Shank, one word, S-C-H-A-N-C-K. And then, you know, RC and then like Friedman Bendas. Yeah. Like that's where, that's where most of the content okay. is. We got it. Great. We'll put links to that stuff in our show notes for this episode too. It has been, it has been awesome talking to you. I, uh, your perspective yeah. is really, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like your sincerity and your thoughtfulness and the way that you think about your, your work and the way you approach things, you, you articulated it in a way that I feel was really, really interesting. And well, I, I love you a little bit, Chris. <laughs> I feel I feel close to you now. I love you too. I love you too. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh I I don't like if if we were probably sitting across from each other, I, I don't know if I could have opened up the same way. I think it's cuz we're, you know, the mystery of the phone. I'm sitting in like a damn hotel room in New York and you know, what else are you going to do but open up your soul right. to strangers well, across the country? That means when you meet us in person, you'll feel we're already connected on such a deep level. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, thanks thank so you. much thank for you. this. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Bye. He's very down to earth and approachable. And I really appreciate that about an artist, especially someone who has a gallery show, like a solo show at such a large gallery, like a well-respected gallery. Mm -hmm. I just felt like he was like a normal person, (laughs) which is so nice. A normal, but you can tell, you can tell he's sensitive too. And that, you know, he hinted at a few things like he moved around 22 times between Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh and and school. He's got a self-destructive streak. Yeah, I agree with you, but I think a lot of creative people have to be overly emotional or have something in their lives that really drives that creativity. And, And sometimes it comes from a dark place or sometimes it comes from moving around 22 times or, you know, having a lot of like codependent relationships or maybe the maybe your artistic side causes you to have those things i don't know there's a relationship there like i think because you're so deeply sensitive you can access all of these feelings but it's also yeah it's also causes you to get into situations where then you have these feelings that you have to (laughs) that you have to work to process Yeah. yeah totally i do think in a grand sort of universal program he found that extended family in his studio as a way of keeping himself from self-destructing. Yeah, I think that there... Well, first of all, he definitely had a lot of mentors along the way. So I think that was huge for him. I mean, it started with his uncle, right? Rocco! Rocco! (laughs) Uncle Rocco! Uh, And then throughout, he talked about... I mean, he named teachers by name from high school and then again in... And then in college yeah. and, and all along the way. So it sounds like he 
Maybe whenever he was ready to veer off of a path, there was someone that intervened in his life. And maybe that was like the universe telling him like, this is the route you need to take, right? And then, yeah, maybe it's come full circle. Maybe he has created the family to not only fill the need that maybe he might have had when he was younger, but also protect him from himself. Yeah. Sometimes we just need somebody to do that for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His work is really exciting. It's almost indescribable, and I, I don't want to put words around it that don't do it justice. So I'm just going to encourage all of our listeners to go check it out because it is the kind of thing that invites you in and pushes you away at the same time. And I find that very provocative and mm-hmm. and infinitely intriguing, you know? Yes, I totally agree. And I also agree when he said that it's it can be off-putting for people or maybe they just immediately love it. So there's a visceral reaction, I think, to his work. But I think that's when you know you've got something good. Like, if nobody hates it and nobody loves it, like, what do you have? Be a beige. Right. You know? Right. There's no passion. The people who hate it either hate it because they don't understand the depth or they hate it because it repulses them in a very real way, which is equally as provocative as the people who love it. But could also be the goal. Well, yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying that's a, that's a yeah. valid and valuable reaction to have. Yes. But no one can say that he's a hack (laughs) or that he's just, you know, putting stuff out there kind of in a slapdash, non-meaningful way. No. And he talked about his studio and the collaboration that happens there and the sense of family and kind of working through these things together. And also it sounded like he respected the ideas of the people that work with him, too. Yeah, or they made him respect. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that it starts with Uncle Rocchio and ends with like seven aunties <laughs> like giving shit all the time. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Chris's work. You can subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or pretty much wherever there is hot podcast action. And please subscribe, rate, and review because that really, really helps us get discovered by new listeners and be able to share these amazing stories with more people. I'm cracking up over hot podcast action. (laughs) That's a good one. Okay, you can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. Tell us what you think. Share your stories. Share what your favorite part of this episode was. Just let us know what you think. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, and this episode was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. 